From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, our focus is the politics of impeachment. As informal impeachment hearings against President Donald Trump garners new momentum, I speak with Professor Katie Harriger, Chair of Wake Forest Politics and International Affairs, and Dr. Elaine Kamel of the Brookings Institute. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. Impeachment of a president has only occurred twice in our nation's history. Andrew Johnson in 1868 and Bill Clinton in 1998. Will Donald Trump become the third American president to be impeached? To begin our conversation of the impeachment hearings by the House of Representatives, we welcome Professor Katie Harriger of the Wake Forest Politics and International Affairs. Professor Katie Harriger, welcome. Welcome back, actually, to the public morality. Thank you for having me. If you had your, let's call it, crisis meter available. <laughs> and would you and you can take into consideration not only uh, our democratic norms but also American history. How high uh, is present day America politically on that meter? Well, I I feel like since Trump was elected the crisis meter has been sort of wildly swinging back and forth. <laughs> And I think what that has done is sort of create what seems like the crisis of the moment all the time. And so I think it's hard sometimes to sort of step back and say, how is this different? Or is this more important than any number of other things that have happened in the last couple of years? Um, But when I do that, I I do think it seems like we're at a sort of real higher point um, of – I guess we you could use the word crisis, um, at least in terms of a, a sort of test of our constitutional system. No, I, I like I like that test because it seems like every pundit is screaming uh, that we're in a constitutional crisis without ever having the burden of explaining what they mean by constitutional mm-hmm. crisis. Right. I mean, you know, I think it, I think the right words to use are that it's a serious test. Um, we also could agree we're not we're not at that Fort Sumter moment yet. Is that that's fair? No, right? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> not okay. Let me just be clear, Katie. Not that I want to get to the Fort Sumter moment. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Whenever people say to me, when I you know one of the things that I'm interested in is sort of how do people have dialogue across difference. And whenever I say, you know, we're really in a bad place in terms of our ability to do that, people are like, oh no no no. Back in the 1850s, people beat each up and beat each other up in the House of Representatives. And I'm like, yeah. And then we had a civil war and we killed each other for four years. Is that really our standard? <laughs> yeah, there, there's your there, there's your benchmark. So so when someone comes down the halls uh, in the House chamber and beats them over the head, probably now with a laptop instead of a cane. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> That's not the standard. Um, you know, one of the arguments against impeachment is the political ramifications uh, in that we're so close to a general election. And mm-hmm. so though impeachment in the House and the subsequent hearings in the in the Senate uh, to convict that process 
is a political process. Mm-hmm. Doesn't history suggest that the founders put this process in place in Article 2 so that no one could engage uh, in what they called high crimes and misdemeanors for four years? We'd have to wait to another election. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly the impeachment process exists because they didn't think, well, the way you get rid of a bad egg is an election. <laughs> you know, if they're uh, – so, yeah, I mean, that's clearly the reason it exists. Um, you know, I also think that it's important to recognize that what the House is doing right now is it has begun an inquiry into whether there are grounds for impeachment. And I think in a lot of the public debate right now, those things are getting conflated as if the impeachment, the actual impeachment process is moving forward. It's the first step. But they're saying we're alarmed enough about what we what has come out that the president himself has released um, that an inquiry is is necessary. That doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, once they if they can get all the information, once they have it, that there's a majority to actually impeach. So so would this be uh, information gathering right now? Yes. Right. It's, it's a, is there enough evidence to move forward on an impeachment is what they're doing right now. So it's, I, I think it's, it's, it's the first step, right? It's mm-hmm. the, but I think it is important to recognize that what there's agreement on in the House is that, that there's more information needed, but this is alarming enough to begin an inquiry as to whether this is an impeachable offense. So, I mean, to, 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 to that extent, because to say, uh, well, even the word impeachment is conflated to mean that with 50, with 51 percent, the president's thrown out of office. I mean, that's how right. you throw in the public discourse. But it is serious. And I think you've, 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 yes. you've critiqued that, that it, is, it is serious. But so far, in my words, it still feels like normal politics in that both sides are going to retreat to the neutral corners and come out fighting with their sort of predictable talking points. And and as a teacher and observer of politics, how, how, how do you see that where, where the public discourse is right now? Yeah, I mean, it, it does appear that there's um, some movement that would suggest that it's not just uh, – that even the public is not seeing it as just partisan politics. So there's been some shift in the polls since the release of the, the – not really a transcript, but the um, summary of the call. Um, and there are some. There, I think that there there are a number of senators who are being very careful about saying we need more information, right? As opposed to immediately going to the partisan uh, barriers and you know immediately critiquing the Democrats for being just partisan. So I I, I think you know, like when you look back at Watergate. You know, the Congress started that investigation and did a, you know, a, quite a long investigation. And for a, an extended period of time, the public thought it was just partisan. And, you know, Nixon sort of successfully sort of framed it that way. It was really with the firing of Archibald Cox that public opinion shifted dramatically. <laughs> um, and, as, and, you know, once the tapes were released, it was hard for the Republicans to continue to defend him. Um, so I, there's just... I think there's still a lot that has to unfold, mm-hmm. but I guess I I think it it's I, it seems like unlike the Mueller report, for example, that there are more Republicans worried about what this might mean and open to hearing more information. 
Now, assuming momentarily that the um, allegations are true and neither one of us are, are suggesting that the allegations are true, um, would you advise Democrats to proceed with impeachment, even if you knew there was no chance to convict in the Senate and that it might hurt the eventual presidential nominee in November? Would you still advise them to, to move forward with impeachment? And if so, why? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> on the one hand, it's it's not as if the House has to do it. Um, the Constitution doesn't require them to do it. Um, and I, it is a political process. And so in that sense, you know, people saying, you know, it's it's fair for the House Democrats to make a political calculation that they're just going to let the voters decide this. On the other hand, and I guess as a constitutional law person um, who dislikes the way in which partisans tend to like constitutional processes when they work to their advantage and dislike them when yeah, they Yeah, they're, 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 I, I found them also to be weird like that, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I would like a little more consistency on the on those issues. Um, you know, I worry about what the what the new norm is if you just say, okay, we're, we're just going to make this all about politics. Um, as we said earlier in the conversation, I mean, we wouldn't have an impeachment process in the Constitution if the writers of the Constitution thought elections alone were supposed to solve problems of abuse of power. And um, and so I think the question is if what appears to be a clear abuse of power on the – I mean, if if, the, if there's enough evidence to substantiate it, but I'm, I frankly, I'm in the camp that says the, the, the transcript itself shows that the president, in fact, asked a favor of another foreign leader um, to get dirt on his – political opponent. (laughs) Um, Then I think I I worry, I guess what I'm worried about is the the new normal being, yeah, well, we're just going to let the voters decide um, because we don't want to take any political risks. Well, well, you know, that's sort of, I'm glad you raised that about about the the summary. It's not a transcript, it's a summary. Right. Uh, Because as I look at the, the, the conversation trail, what I garnered was, you know, thank you for your support, Mr. President. Uh, we're ready to buy these weapons. You know, you're welcome for your support. And now, now you can do me a favor. So it, it, it wasn't explicit, but it did feel like it was a quid pro quo between the president and a, and a foreign leader about a potential rival in domestic politics. That's how right. it felt to me. Right. And at the same time, you have... A, a decision at the highest level by the president uh, telling his um, OMB guy not to release the money. I mean, you know, not to release the support that Congress had authorized. And this is happening at the same time. And it, it's, it's released right before it comes out that the whistleblower letter has been filed. And that, and that sort of goes back to your point about the convenience, or, or, or should I say inconvenience, of the Constitution in that I, I think we're— it seems to me we're so partisan now that the very people who, let's say, would be supporting of the president would be animately opposed if it was the other if the party of the other president was doing this behavior, mm-hmm. and then those who are supporting who are supporting impeachment now would be animately supportive of that president. So how do we get beyond that partisan level to to this to these democratic norms that you talked about earlier? 
Well, I mean, I, th- I really do think part of it has to be about trying to educate the public about sort of what the Constitution expects. <laughs> you know, what is what is the what should be the, the sort of constitutional decision making that's going on, and then let the chips fall where they may. Um, but I. I I mean, we've had these conversations before, too. I mean, the state of our civic education and the people's understanding of the constitutional process is really sadly um, in bad shape, <laughs> and, and which makes it easier for partisans to make it partisan, right, if you don't have any sort of counter frame for understanding what's going on. I want people to be better educated about the system is for very democratic reasons, not elitist reasons. I don't think a, de- a democracy... Work if you don't have widespread knowledge of how it's supposed to work. <laughs> it, it shouldn't be knowledge that just a small group of people have. Right. right. A, a small cabal of us who are bothered to read the Constitution and Declaration yeah. of Independence. <laughs> um, to, but to that point, though, you mentioned Watergate earlier. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be fair to say in spite of the cacophony going both ways, there is – we're not at a point to where there is that proverbial smoking gun. Certainly the tapes were definitely uh, – when the tapes were released and Nixon within, what, four or five days after Watergate break-in obviously knew about it, that was a smoking gun. Uh, we don't have that yet, but yet we're, we're hardwired – are we hardwired, I should say, to so that the smoking gun is sort of perfunctory because we've already made up our minds? Well, I mean, I actually think there's – probably some disagreement about whether there's a smoking gun out there. <laughs> um, I mean, I think there are there are a number of people on both sides of the aisle, and I think the people who are part of the complaint, because, I mean, I think it's important to recognize that the whistleblower complaint is a summary of what a bunch of people have said, not just what the whistleblower <laughs> is saying, right? These are things other people in the White House or around the White House told the whistleblower which means there's more than a few people quite concerned about what went on there. And and what is implied, at least, in the whistleblower complaint is, is a pattern of behavior. I think that people in the intelligence community, for example, think there's a smoking gun. But if your, que- your question is, are we is, – is this sort of – our partisan polarization make us hardwired to either believe it or not see it? Right, <laughs> right. I, I mean – and, yeah, I think that that's true, but I also think it's possible that, um, you know, I don't I don't think of most people in the intelligence community, for example, as being fierce partisans, especially career people, right? And that's – there has been a lot of concern expressed in that arena. Once that that tape came out that, we, that referred to earlier with this on tape, you know, mm-hmm. you had – Republican leaders in the Senate, Barry Goldwater, uh, Howard Baker, and others, walk, mm-hmm. walking down to the White House. Mr. President, you don't have the votes, and, and, and we're part of those who are going to vote against right. you. I, I just – and maybe we're – I don't know if we've come to that No, point. I don't think we're there yet. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. No, I, but I do I, – I have been interested to – I just read a piece yesterday. I think it was – I guess it was in the weekend, uh, Washington Post, a piece by – uh, former senator from Arizona, Jeff Flake, mm-hmm. sort of basically making an argument to his Republican colleagues, saying, you know, it's time to save your soul. <laughs> That's essentially the language that he used. Um, sort of making an argument for being the Howard Baker of today or, or allowing for the possibility that you could play that role. 
And I think that, you know, there have been Mitt Romney has said this is a serious cause for concern that merits our close attention. This could be a smoking gun. Right. Um, so I don't think we're we're at the point where they're going to the White House to say you're not going to make it. But I think that there has been a shift in the last week um, that suggests that that outcome is possible. Well, Probably not probable yet. Yeah, right. <laughs> but possible. So. Which just two weeks ago, people would have said that's impossible. Professor Katie Harriger, Wake Forest University, uh, thank you once again for returning to provide your sage wisdom yeah. on the public morality. We- that was Katie Harriger of Wake Forest University. Stay tuned as I continue my conversation on impeachment with Dr. Elaine Kmart of the Brussels Institute. Welcome back. To continue our conversation on impeachment, I'm joined by Dr. Elaine Kmark of the Brookings Institute. Dr. Elaine Kmark, it's so great to have you back on The Public Morality. Oh, thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. If you were advising House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, how would you frame uh, the the, the, uh, release transcript of the conversation between President Donald Trump and the Ukrainian president? Well, I think it's pretty clear-cut, um, and you ha- everyone has to understand that that conversation took place against a backdrop of $391 million being withheld from the Ukraine, money that was used in part for support for the Ukrainian military against the Russian takeover of Crimea. So you have to understand that piece of background. So with that in the background, then you have to understand that the president saying to the president of Ukraine, I want a favor, right, is a little bit more sinister than I want a favor. It's a little bit more like I have money that you desperately want, and I want you to open up an investigation on one of my political opponents. And I think that Pretty much that's the way everyone is interpreting that. Uh, It doesn't read exactly that way unless you understand that there was money that was being withheld. And the money that was appropriated in the same batch had already gone out to other countries. The Ukrainian money was being held back. And once you know that, then you read that transcript and it's like, oh, got it. This is um, this is a holdup. In terms of uh, the politics of it, are we are we at a point of no return in terms of an impeachment vote and the requisite number uh, of whether and whether or not the requisite number of Republican senators ex- exist to convict? Are we at a point of no return on that? It looks like that. It certainly looks like that, and the information there's two types of information coming out this week one is information that attorney general barr and others 
seem to have been going around the world asking other foreign leaders to mount investigations that would help um, President Trump's political fortunes by harming his opponents. Uh, so that only adds to the legal case. The second piece of that, of course, is what's happening in the polls, and there's an uptick in the number of people who think that Trump should be impeached and an uptick in the number of people who think he should be convicted. So with both the legal questions and the political undercurrents moving in the same direction, it certainly looks like we're at a point where uh, we can't go back. Uh, I, I know um, you're, you're, you're familiar with the impeachment of Bill Clinton. How, uh, how serious are these charges in relation to that impeachment process in 98-99? Um, they're much more serious, and the reason is that they involved using the office of the president and the power of the United States to achieve a personal political end. What Bill Clinton did was certainly immoral. It was certainly embarrassing. It was certainly unfair to the poor young woman that I think he took advantage of. But it did not involve the interests of the United States of America, and it did not involve holding up another country for his personal political um, advantage. So the impeachment of Bill Clinton uh, and he did commit a crime. He did lie under oath. He did commit a, a, a federal offense. Um, but no one thought, and that's why he was acquitted and not convicted, no one thought that that rose to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors that is cited in the Constitution. Talk about, if you would, uh, we're speaking with Elaine uh, Kmark of the Brooklyn Institute. Talk, talk about the difficult line that Speaker Pelosi has to walk in that she can't appear to be gauging in a rush to judgment, but at the same time, if the process is too deliberate, then it, beca- then it looks like a partisan witch hunt. How does she negotiate those two? And, and, and comment if, if that's an inaccurate assessment. Uh, no, I think she, she needs to be careful not to throw in the kitchen sink on this. She needs to focus the inquiry on instances where the president is intentionally abusing power or committing what is a high crime and misdemeanor. So there will be certain things that the public has gotten irate about, justifiably so, like the treatment of families at the border, um, like the use of his hotels um, for to seemingly make money, um, that probably won't end up in the final impeachment uh, process or in the final articles of impeachment. I think the way to understand impeachment is to look at the whole Constitution and look at what the Founding Fathers were most interested in. They were most interested in preventing an autocrat. They did not want another King George. And so they put lots of restrictions on presidential behavior, and they gave the Congress um, an awful lot of authority to check and stop the president from doing things. When the president then um, goes around Congress and thinks that he can act in defiance of Congress, that becomes 
that becomes something that we begin to think of as impeachable and as a high crime and misdemeanor. So in the case of the Ukraine, the Congress had appropriated this money for the purpose of military aid to the Ukraine. Um, it was appropriated properly. It was signed off on properly. And the president was holding it up for personal political reasons. That flies in the face of the underlying intent of our constitutional structure, and therefore it becomes an impeachable offense. Paying hush money to a porn star, okay, may be egregious politically, just as Bill Clinton's dalliance with a young intern was egregious, um, morally and, and, you know, politically damaging, but it does not raise to the level of involving the checks and balances in the Constitution. Uh, in terms of public opinion, does, my words, the fatigue around the previous Mueller investigation exacerbate the problem for Speaker Pelosi and, and her handling of this, this uh, impeachment inquiry? Um, I think there's a little bit of that. Uh, I think there is a little bit of that. But I think moving this inquiry into a new, to a new level is probably going to get rid of that. A lot of people were disappointed that she didn't move on impeachment after the Mueller report came out because in terms of uh, big issues, you know, the, the sort of big issues that impeachment is about and should be about, um, the Mueller report made a pretty sound case that the president had obstructed justice. Well, nobody was very interested in pursuing impeachment on that alone. And so I think that there's a lot of people who, when this came out, said, okay, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back, time to go. And, of course, the one of the most important factors here were the seven members of Congress, new members of Congress from marginal districts, which means they do not have safe seats, um, who all have a national security background. Uh, five of them are veterans, two of them are C former CIA um, analyst operatives. And when they said, wow, presidents should not do this, then I think it started a deluge and 86 other Democrats followed very quickly, and I think the tide turned. Hmm. I mean, I mean, to be clear, uh, we're talking about something. If the allegations are true, are we not talking about something that is abhorrent in any democratic society? Not just what the founding fathers put in our constitution, but this is something that sort of separates democratic societies from authoritarian rules. Would that be correct? Absolutely. Look, in authoritarian societies, the um, prime minister or the president or the head of state routinely uses government money to blackmail their opponents, to investigate their opponents, to jail or murder their opponents. I mean, that is characteristic of authoritarian dictatorships, right? They, the, the, the money of the state is, frankly, their own personal money. And sometimes they put it in their own pockets. Often they do. Uh, sometimes they use it to destroy their enemies. Sometimes they use it to buy 
the communications media of the country, so there's no free press. I mean, we, we have loads and loads of examples of the way authoritarian leaders behave. And this, this is the reason I think this has been so appalling to so many people is I can't think of an American president who ever did anything remotely like this. And it's, you know, it's caused people to say, wow, okay, this is, this is the end of, this is the end. We can't tolerate anymore. Now, when, when Watergate occurred, um, uh, one either watched the hearings live, uh, as I did as a nerdy child, um, <laughs> the, uh, or the, or you, or you got, you got a synopsis from the evening news or your yep. local paper, your, your morning or your afternoon paper. Some people are on the radio and public opinion will um, public opinion now moves so fast, and and it's gonna and undoubtedly is going to be swayed by uh, uh, av- partisan advertising on, on both sides of, of the aisle. So, how do you sus- how do you suspect that sort of political war that will go on in the public arena outside of the of the normal political process? How is that going to muddy the waters against lawmakers? reaching a judicious decision on on a matter where the facts lead them oh i think they're going to cut i think they're going to turn off their twitter account <laughs> i mean i really do um i think many of them are saying things and understand this as uh, one congresswoman said it's a 1776 moment referring to the mm-hmm. year of the declaration of independence you know, this is this is a moment where you have to be serious and uh, make a judgment independent of public opinion. I think also what's going on as we speak for the next two weeks is that members of Congress are in their districts and they are talking to their constituents and they're educating, frankly, their constituents as to why this is such a problem. Uh, and they're hearing back from their constituents. So I think that there's, you know, whenever you have a really major, major national issue, people learn things, right? They learn things about the Constitution. They learn things about the way politics has always been conducted in the United States. And I think there's learning going on right now. And the members of Congress and the senators are the leaders in that learning. Will the Republican Party try to obfuscate these issues? Yes. Will some Democrats try to promote the issues? Yes. Um, But I think fundamentally, look, we are talking about 100 United States senators and how they perceive the evidence. And they are not going to be relying on their Twitter accounts for the evidence. Earlier in the broadcast, I... um had Katie Herriger, the uh, chair of the political science department at Wake Forest University. Mm-hmm. And I asked her, I'm going to pose the same question to you. I, I asked her, Professor Herriger, would, would you advise uh, impeachment, or and, and, even if you knew you didn't have the votes in the Senate to convict and you might cost the Democrats the, the presidential uh, Democratic nominee next year, some electoral votes. In other words, is this m- moment for you uh, greater than any 
political considerations? Uh, yes, I think it is. And I think Pelosi understood it that way. Remember, up until last week, she had resisted, she and her leadership team had resisted impeachment. And I think they thought that the case wasn't clear-cut enough. It wasn't directly involving the president. Um, remember that even in all the Mueller reports, which creates lots of smoke, right? Lots of people went to jail. There were clearly people around the president doing the wrong thing. But remember that the Mueller report never really touched the president himself, right? There is nothing in there that says that um, Donald Trump sat in Trump Tower talking to Putin saying, hey, those ads, are, those ads you're running on the Internet are really helping me thank a lot, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, there, you know, there was just nothing that touched the president. This, however, is, by his own admission, this is a conversation that the president himself had. So the, the, the big change from, you know, from before last week to this week is that the president himself is in the middle of doing something that, in fact, uh, previous presidents have never done. And I think that's what changes it, and that's what makes it – that's what makes people say, okay, damn the politics, we must pursue this because of the seriousness of this and because the president himself is involved. Well, you mentioned the president himself is involved. Thus far, um, there's nothing that the whistleblower has said that has been countered. Uh, does the, pre the, the, the summary uh, of the president's uh, conversation, does that in and of itself create a smoking gun for you? Uh, yes, it does. It, it does. And again, it is. It creates a smoking gun because it is clearly against the backdrop of withheld money. If the money had never been withheld, then you may the president may be able to say, "Oh, listen, I, I kind of misspoke. You know, this was just a, I was concerned about the politics and concerned about corruption in the Ukraine, etc." But it is against the backdrop of withheld money that makes that conversation look as sinister as many people are saying it is. And and, and to that point, one of the one of the um, talking points that those who support the president um, have favored is the Joe Biden did it too uh, alibi or response or justification. I wonder how how you saw that in light of the context of this conversation. Well, clearly that is going to be, at least for the time being, the strategy of the president's supporters to sort of argue that everyone is corrupt. Now, the problem here is that all Joe Biden did was say something that the entire European Union was saying to the Ukraine, which is this prosecutor is corrupt, and therefore you have to get rid of him. So the prosecutor himself was so deeply involved in corruption that European Union um, people, and remember, remember what the Ukraine is about, right? The Ukraine, half of it is looking to Europe, and the other half is looking to Russia. There, it's a very split country in just so many ways. 
the European half particularly is anxious to was anxious to get involved get access to the European Union the Ukraine wanted to be in the European Union and in order to do that you have to meet certain levels of honesty in government so to have, so to have a, a prosecutor who is supposedly prosecuting public corruption the involved in corruption himself is kind of a no-brainer and so Joe Biden and the European Union and the rest of the United States foreign policy establishment in the government was saying the same thing. So it basically proves nothing. Joe Biden did not say, oh, get rid of this guy because he's, he's um, going to prosecute a company that my son used to sit on the board of. There's nothing like that. And, and I guess to, to your point, there's nothing like the vice president uh, was holding funds that had already been appropriated by Congress, which the vice president didn't even have the power to do that, but he wasn't holding up funds. No, that's right. He wasn't. He wasn't holding up funds. This was not a. This this was so much bigger than what Joe Biden's son was involved with. That it really is a false comparison, but it is clearly it, it tips the hand that one of the things they're going to try to do is try to make sort of every Democrat you ever heard of, all the way back to Franklin Roosevelt, um, make them look corrupt, so that by comparison, Trump looks like he was behaving in line with previous presidents. And it's not going to work. And part of the reason it's not going to work is that Trump was, in fact, really out of line with established foreign policy of American presidents. You know, you know, we've gated everything. And what I mean by gated, you know, Watergate spawned Iran-Contra gate, uh, Russia gate. I mean, we've gated everything. So have we, have we gated ourselves to a place that we're almost numb to scandal? Um, you know, it's an interesting question. We are certainly numb to sort of personal scandals. Um, you know, uh, I'm amazed at you know, really how little impact the Stormy Daniels, you know, controversy had on President Trump. It's kind of like, eh, the guy fooled around, big deal. We're not going to care about this. So we certainly have given people lately, and with Kavanaugh too, um, we, people have gotten, I think, the numbness on personal misbehavior is there. Um I don't know that we are numb to constitutional misbehavior. I don't know that we have numbed to a point where somebody is threatening, you know, the very essence of the Constitution and trying to be a um, dictator as opposed to a president in a democratically elected system. Hmm. Dr. Elaine K. Mark. Brookings Institute, I want to thank you for once again joining us on The Public Morality. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archived broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. 
For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>